Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Somia Krishnamurthy. Somia is a music journalist and pop culture expert. Her work can be found in publications like Rolling Stone, Billboard, XXL, Playboy, High Snobiety, Complex, New York Magazine, Village Voice, and Time, among others. She has interviewed artists from J. Cole and Kendrick Lamar to Ariana Grande, Travis Scott, and Alicia Keys. As an on-air host, she has appeared on MTV, MSNBC, VH1, Hot 97, Build Series, E! Entertainment, BET, CNN, NPR, BBC, and more. Her work has been aired in the United States, Canada, the UK, France, and Israel. She hosted and programmed SiriusXM's The Lookout radio show. Her first book, the main focus of our conversation today, is Fashion Killer, How Hip-Hop Revolutionized High Fashion. And that comes out on October 10th, 2023 through Gallery Books slash Simon & Schuster. Somia began her career at William Morris Endeavor's agent training program, CNN and Bad Boy Records. She is a graduate of the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Woo, that's a lot. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks so much. Awesome to talk to you. We're recording on the 26th of August. The, the book will be out October 10th. We're hoping to release this episode on that day. So people listening won't know the difference, but you've got, uh, what is that? Maybe a month and a half till the book comes out. Like, I know you've been in the game for a while writing, you know, you obviously been published a lot, but like, what does it feel like to, in this run up to the book coming out? I think it's surreal, right? Mm. I think if you want to use the music analogy, it's sort of like you put out a lot of mixtapes and then finally you have to put out your debut album. <laughs> and in many ways, this is like the body of work for me being in the hip hop space for well over a decade now, it's mm -hmm. really important for me to tell hip hop stories in an elevated lens through a prestige lens. So for me as an author, that's really kind of what's going through my mind. And that was really kind of what was bolstering this idea of Fashion Killer and doing the first comprehensive anthology about hip hop and fashion and making sure it was time to hip hop 50. Um, mm. It's, mm. it's so interesting. So the origin of this book was an article I'd done for double XL a couple years ago. And I had interviewed like ASAP Ferg and Misa Hilton and all these people. But in my research, I was really shocked to find that there was no book about the subject. Mm. So there were a few memoirs and coffee table books. But the idea of someone really diving deep, looking into everything from the history to psychology to culture and how they all are woven together to tell this story had never been told. Yeah. So with a lot of things in my career, when I don't see the blueprint, I just kind of decide, well, I'll do it myself. And mm -hmm. that was really the inception of this book. 
I appreciate that. I think it was one of your social media was, you know, it was like the classic, like how it began, how it's going. So like maybe three or four years between like kind of like really getting the idea crystallized and, and the book coming out. Is that about right? I would say from proposal to actually seeing it on the shelf, mm-hmm. almost three years. Exactly. It's a little okay. bit longer, but yeah, I mean, publishing is very much like a long lead process. We oftentimes think of print as being long lead, but publishing, you can take years to sort of come up with an idea, write a book and then see it on the shelves. Mm -hmm. For me, this was sort of like my pandemic project. So the pandemic had hit and that was really when the industry kind of stopped. There was nothing going on on the freelancing front. Mm. Artists weren't doing interviews. Everyone was kind of at home watching verses or club quarantine on Instagram and not much was going on. So this was really a good positive project for me to to focus on because the good thing was while everybody was at home, there was this voracious appetite for reading and books were flying off the shelves. So the timing was in many ways sort of the, uh, the worst of times, but also in many ways the best of times because I could really sit down, focus, um, without all the distractions, you know, living in New York at any given moment, there's something going on or yeah. an artist has something going on and you feel kind of pulled in many, in many spaces, but yeah. this way I could just sit down at the house and just like, write. So I probably yeah. spent about maybe like a year just researching. Mm-hmm. So research was everything from reading other books and kind of, um, tangential spaces, watching every documentary and again there wasn't a lot so I was watching almost things that were just related to hip-hop I know the supreme team team doc had dropped so I was watching all of that um reading every magazine article I could get a hold of every old archival newspaper I could get a hold of and just sitting there and doing research yeah and the thing about books is you might read an entire book and then one line is somewhat relevant to your work. And mm-hmm. that's just kind of what it is. So in many ways, it's kind of going back to school and I felt very, very academic, um, mm-hmm. kind of pouring through journal articles and things like that, which I haven't done in a long time. And then I spent about a year and a half, I would say, just writing. And a thing about a book is you turn in your first sort of uh, draft and then that goes through many rounds of edit. I would say probably my first round was, you know, kind of probably the most aggressive round of edits. Mm -hmm. Um, And then afterwards, it's just like little tweaks here and there. But yeah, I mean, you'll see your book probably four or five times before the reader sees it. And, you know, I I talk to other authors and they say, no matter what you do, you're going to still catch a typo. You're still going to catch something you Mm -hmm. wish you had added or taken away. So it's it's sort of like a work of art in that sense. Like it's never fully done, but at some point you just got to step away and say, okay, yeah. now it belongs to the people and uh, and anything I missed, we'll get, we'll get on the next edition. I mean, I got to think it's obviously what makes you a great writer is, I mean, I got to think you're a perfectionist of sorts. Is that tough to look at and say, dang it, you know, that, that extra letter there or whatever. But it Absolutely. Is yeah. It is what it is. At some yeah. point you just got to, you got to let go. And, you know, even with this book, one of the big challenges was how do you take 50 years of history mm-hmm. and with so many different characters and scenes and moments mm-hmm. and put it in one book. Mm-hmm. So just kind of a little bit of behind the scenes for anyone interested in doing a nonfiction book, your proposal features kind of a chapter by chapter outline. 
So a lot of writers say that's even harder to write than the book itself because it's Uh you taking the subject and how are you going to distill it within, I think in my case, it was like, you know, 16 chapters. And I put together what I thought was very comprehensive. But once I started the actual research and interviewing, I would be taken in different directions. So some of the chapters stayed as is, but others completely changed. Um, I was just doing another interview and I mentioned I had a whole chapter dedicated to photographers and I had interviewed icons like Jeanette Beckman and Estevan Oriol and Jonathan Mannion. And I really wanted to just do a chapter like kind of through the lens of the shooter, but it just didn't fit anywhere. And Mm. for me, that's kind of like one of the many lost chapters where maybe at some time there'll be a a place to sort of resurface it, but it just didn't fit. And Mm. oftentimes with a book, you're telling, you want to be kind of the definitive expert on the subject, but you have to know that there's parts of it you just can't get to, right? And you think about even in something like a biography of a famous person, some authors focus a lot on their childhood, some focus Mm. a lot on their professional career, others focus on sort of the behind the scenes moments. So as a writer, that's where you get a lot of this creative freedom. And one thing that was really important to me in telling this story was focusing on it from a holistic perspective. So not just talking about the designers and the artists, but also those individuals behind the scenes, the editors at magazines like Vibe and The Source, um, people who were, uh, you know, assistants, people who were interns, maybe not the boldface names, but are still a part of this conversation. It was also really important to focus on inclusivity because oftentimes in hip hop, um, you know, and especially when we're talking about hip hop and fashion, it's told through like a New York centric lens. And of course, New York is where it started. And New York is also the American home of luxury fashion. So it's a very big character in the book. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to make sure that we're giving props to the West Coast and talking about the swap meets and the eight ball jackets and things Mm -hmm. like that, going to the South and using that as the peg to talk about artists like Andre 3000 or Young Thug and how they really utilized fashion to push um, gender boundaries, Mm -hmm. boundaries and conversations about sexuality in hip hop, which has been kind of this hot button yet taboo topic for a very long time. Um, And then focusing on women, focusing on international voices, again, just really giving it this like global universal perspective was really important as well, Mm -hmm. because I didn't want it to still feel like we're focusing on the same five bold faced men who already are getting, you know, their props and flowers. But if we're going to put a stake in the ground to really show that this is such a larger, comprehensive conversation. Mm. I appreciate that. Yeah, I want to make sure. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, timing with with the 50 year anniversary of hip hop. And like, I was a little dense on this, but like, and I mean, this is a compliment. You didn't, it's not a gimmicky book. It's not like, oh, you know, this is really, it's just for the 50, like, it covers, you know, starting with the, with you know DJ Cool Herc and the party, and you know, kind of when hip hop had his birthday, so to speak, up to more or less the, the 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 current day. But it's not gimmicky. It's not like you know, it's not arbitrary years. Like it really gives a really macro and micro view, which is which is really impressive. I want absolutely, to make sure, and you know, I think one interesting thing, and I do mention it in the book, this idea of culture having sort of like one definitive starting point is. Mm. Yeah. is a misnomer, right? right? Like the idea of hip hop starting only 50 years ago, of course not. You have to look at the black experience in America and then go back to, you know, Africa and percussion and 
call and response and all of these things. So the idea of it starting August 11, 73, I think is just something as a genre, everyone sort of, you know, agreed upon because mm-hmm. at some point you got, you got to put, you know, the, the stake in the ground somewhere. Yeah. What's really interesting. And this was why I think starting the book with that famous cool Herc party was Herc was spinning his sister's party and his sister wanted to throw the party as a way to fundraise for her after school mm-hmm. wardrobe. Yeah. So it's this idea of fashion was really kind of the bedrock of this conversation right. that oftentimes doesn't get spoken about, right? A lot of people don't talk about Cindy Herc and this was her party that her brother happened to be the DJ at. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, yes, it was very important that even in our first chapter, we dive into Dapper Dan, but to tell his story, we have to go back. What is the history of Harlem? Why that neighborhood specifically has always represented Black wealth, Black excellence, and excellence not just in fashion and sartorialism, but in art and literature and thought leaders, right? I mean, the Harlem Renaissance, you have to talk about these things for us to then talk about guys like Daph. And I think that was really important because when this subject is sort of spoken about, I feel it's done often in a very cursory way, right? Like Dapper Dan, logos, okay, there's a story. And that's a very important part, but let's go deeper. Mm -hmm. What do logos signify? And in order to talk about in luxury fashion, it's the sort of notion of social signaling, psychology of who gets to wear what, and if you go back in time, there were things called sumptuary laws, which really were laws about who could wear what, right? So when the queen proclaims that only royalty can wear this fabric or people of this station can wear these colors, this has been going on since the dawn of time. And that's what now trickles down to this idea that, okay, a, a Gucci or Louis Vuitton or you know whatever logo can only be worn by certain types of people. Mm. So I think it's this idea of seeing this topic, which, you know, I think even a lot of like editors, when I first spoke to, they really didn't see the vision. Um, They thought, okay, this would be a great coffee table book, Mm. or, you know, let's focus on just one designer. But to me, I'm like, no, there's like a bigger story. And Hip Hop 50 is merely kind of the, you know, conversational touch point. But because this goes from 73 to 2023, literally bookended by Pharrell taking his post Mm -hmm. at Louis Vuitton, I see this as something that has a really long tail and is very extensive and comprehensive. And that was really the goal that I set out to do. Hmm. Trying to remember the phrasing you used. How would you how how would you describe the hat? The hat? Like what was for Pharrell, what was the like? What's the style? Oh, the Vivian, the Vivian Westwood hat. Yeah, it's called like a buffalo hat, but <laughs> colloquially, I think if you go into Google and write the Pharrell hat, it's yeah. what comes up. Yeah. Well, thanks for reminding me, Speaking of Google. Like, thanks for reminding me. I think I maybe knew, but the whole like Google images started because of the dress, because of the J Lo dress. That's I'm like, yeah, crazy, yeah. Right? So right. So I mean, a lot of people remember that iconic J Lo Versace dress that had the most plunging neckline you could ever see. I think it went down to like below her belly button. And she wore that at the time she was dating Sean Puffy Combs and they went to the Grammys. And that dress was debuted on the, on the Grammy red carpet. And she, you know, took the podium to give out an award. And everyone was talking about the dress. I remember so distinctly, I think I was either in like 
middle school or just starting high school, all the guys were talking about the dress. And because of that, Google realized that people want a way to search just for images. Mm -hmm. And one of the heads of Google actually spoke about that. And I use the quote in the book that that dress was the catalyst because people just wanted to see, you know, this incredible, um, you know, fashionista wearing something that was so by today's standards, a little bit tame, but back yeah. then, I mean, we really, it was very not safe for work. Um, <laughs> and again, it just shows this power of fashion where it can touch so many parts of our lives that we don't even realize it. And that was really kind of the point there was that something that's, it can be viewed as a simple garment. It can be viewed as a pop culture moment, but I would say that changed the world because mm. now anytime you want to see something, you go on Google images mm. and you see what comes up. So you yeah. can thank JLo and uh, Donatella Versace for that dress. Right. Well, I was telling you about before we started recording about one of the, the common concerts. I went to back to the day back in the day. It was another common concert and Pharrell just happened to be there. It was in LA. He was just watching or whatever. I'm like, man, I want to be this guy. He gets up, he gets a huge round of applause as he should. He steps up and kind of does like the Star Trek writers, whatever to one of the songs he's done, you know, probably gets free comp to everything, but what a, what a talent. And I just, you know, I just think of like the, the change clothes and the whole, like, I, I don't necessarily know that I thought of it at the time or even before I read the book, like the whole of like Jay-Z kind of like showing like a shift. Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I uh, think I was maybe in, I have been just starting college. And I remember this moment where every guy started wearing button downs and blazers which makes no sense in college, right? Because before <laughs> they were wearing like the polos, like Kanye, um, the old throwback jerseys, like the Mitchell and S. And just one day everyone wanted to wear blazers. And when you would go out to the, like a party or the club, guys had on like these like baggy jeans, a button down, a blazer. And if they were really about their life, you know, a New York Yankee fitted. And that was a look. Um, maybe you would accent it with some jewelry, but for a guy that became the, the paragon and mm. I, I got to give it to Jay. Cause he was like, you know what? We're not doing the triple XL shirts no more. Mm. We're not doing no jerseys. We're going to step it up. And I think it reflected where he was in his life and his right. career. Cause that's the black album. Right. So in his mind, he's thinking of that evolution to what his next move as a grown man is going to be. And that really trickled down and you saw um, the shift. And that was kind of one of, I think, the seismic shifts. The other, going back to, you mentioned Pharrell, I mean, who can forget skinny jeans? Hmm. There was so much pushback. Even Jay on um, DOA, he makes a mention about, yeah. yeah, your jeans are too tight. And, but that was something that came from, you know, the skaters were doing it. It came from guys who were interested in rock and punk. And you saw someone like a Pharrell really embracing that silhouette, little Wayne. Now, of course, I would argue that they also had the physiques too, right? Like skinny jeans in the beginning were not very flattering universally. So I understand where a lot of people were hesitant. But just this idea of taking these big baggy silhouettes and let's make them not just tailored, but like real medium, right? Like suck it all in. And that now you, you know, I don't think you'll ever see someone wearing, you know, a baggy silhouette unless it happens to be like a nod to the 90s or some sort Mm. of throwback moment. It's all about now looking very tailored. Um, You know, rappers are working out. They want to show off Mm. their physiques as well. And it's again, that was just a shift that in the beginning, there was so much pushback. Like you think it's crazy now. And I think 
for like somebody in Gen Z, it, it makes no sense. What do you mean mm. you were, they were fighting? People were fighting against it. They were making, you know, assumptions about people's sexuality and preferences based upon how tight their genes were. But mm. now, I mean, that is kind of de facto and everyone wants to look mm. very tailored and now that's the look of, okay, you look at, like you have your finger on the pulse of fashion. Yeah. Yeah. My five and seven year old, especially my five year old would be like, dad, you were alive in the nineties. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. The greatest, the greatest decade of hip hop. Yes. I was alive, honey. That's actually actually an objective statement. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's an objective. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's It's like well known. And you know, I think that that era was so interesting because you saw hip hop in the beginning of the nineties. It's still, kind of this idea of a underground culture genre and you soon just start to see it swell on the commercial level of course you know gangster rap had a huge um influence on that and the explosion of mtv and shows like trl and Mm. on bet rap city it was all of these kind of different factors coming together where hip-hop was making a lot of money Mm -hmm. they were commercially viable you had this group of these young entrepreneurs like a sean puffy combs like dame dash who not only wanted to wear high fashion but they wanted to be high fashion so Mm -hmm. why are we supporting other people's lines we should have our own Mm -hmm. and then music videos were 24 7 propagating these images for those kids who didn't grow up in the 90s i remember coming home you come home at like three o'clock after school from like three to seven, we just watch music videos and yeah, music really. content. And it wasn't just your favorite artists, right? Now with YouTube and Spotify and things like that, you get to select and listen to only what you like. Mm. So if I wanted to watch, let's say a Mace video and who wouldn't want to watch a Mace video, <laughs> you might have to watch five other artists before you see that video. So we all became, I would say, kind of these pop culture generalists where Mm. you knew what was going on in pop and rock and country and all of these other areas and culture and this idea of pop culture. We all kind of agreed. So if you ask five people who's the biggest artist or what's like the song of the summer, we would say the same thing. Mm. Now it's so much more segmented and there's this idea of every person is sort of a micro influencer. But back Mm. then, the music video, uh, magazine covers, radio, these things really were the gatekeepers and kind of helped us figure out who was the best dressed. And it wasn't shocking that everyone kind of did want to dress alike then because it was understood. These are the influencers Mm -hmm. and we all kind of took notes from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ashamed to admit, I, I underestimated Mace for a long time. I was like, ah, she, you know, that. How dare you? Long. I know, I know. I, I, I changed. I changed my ways a long time ago. But, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, just kind of that mumble, whatever you want to call it, you know, like, but no, I, I, I apologize to Mace and anyone you know, else involved. In the 90s, so like you, some of your interviews you talked about growing up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think it was your brother was like a, was a percussionist. Yeah, he is. So right? he... He specializes in Indian percussion, but at this point now he has like a PhD from Eastman and he can play like a bunch of instruments. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the musical talent went to him and my mom and Mm -hmm. I'm more so a connoisseur um, than than somebody. I mean, I did sing in choir for a couple of years, so I can hold a note if I have to, 
Uh, I can sort of read music. I was better at sight reading for, uh, earlier than I am now, but music was always just kind of in my house and it was a variety of music. I mean, growing up, obviously it's like Indian classical music, um, but I would listen to like Fiddler on the Roof, like mm-hmm. ad nauseum. I don't know who gave me that. That was the jam. Tape. That was a jam. Sunrise, Sunset. It's great that I mean I yeah. I'm not a musical person but Fiddler and Rent yeah. but Fiddler especially I yeah, really yeah, love yeah. and there would be and radio I mean I remember we would record songs off the radio I was just there gonna was ask you about that remember you missed like about eight seconds because you heard it and by the time you got over there it was too late you pushed the two yeah record and, and play at the same time and yeah. there was this weekly countdown so growing up in a small city in the Midwest we didn't have like a hip hop station or what's, you know, sometimes called an urban station. But we had sort of top 40. And I remember there would be this, this Casey Kasem, oh, a yeah. very iconic, iconic radio um, personality. And he would have like his top 40 countdown, I think it was. And you would hear everything from Whitney Houston to Sheryl Crow, um, Mariah Carey. So I had a lot of these sort of just cross-genre cross-cultural influences when it comes to music which looking back is is pretty unique but I really gravitated towards hip-hop I would say maybe at the age of like 12 11 12 about Mm -hmm. that age um because you got to remember kids back in the day there was an explicit lyric sticker so as a kid you couldn't just go to the store and buy this music an adult had to buy it for you Mm -hmm. so to convince my parents to do that I was probably closer to like 13 um but because again things like mtv and radio and things like that i was able to be a consumer without buying a little bit earlier Mm. um but yeah but that was really kind of my journey of discovery and again i think when you grow up in the middle of nowhere i don't have the experiences of people who grew up in big cities we didn't have the hip-hop station we didn't have like the local dj the concerts none of that Mm. so the internet was really important and i remember going into like yahoo chat rooms <laughs> and talking to people about rap or message boards um i used to read page six every day like mm. page six was a very big gossip column in new york and everybody wanted to be in page six and from that i learned who what are the hottest restaurants who's dating who mm. uh, okay everybody goes to the hamptons in the summer like learning about culture just through these very kind of like cobbled together ways um an interesting thing about page six when i interviewed cam for my book he said that the reason he wore that iconic pink spur outfit that everybody kind of knows him for he wanted to get written about in page six like Mm. it was that big of a deal that when Mm. he was at the baby fat fashion show at new york fashion week he's like i need to make a statement and he was successful and that, again, just shows kind of the power of the media and all these different forces and creating these iconic pop culture moments. Yeah. I had to take a picture of this. I don't remember what chapter it's in. But speaking of page six, it was it was about like when when P. Diddy, Sean Combs, all the different names, when he had like his first white party in the Hamptons. Yeah. New York Post, page six in the New York Daily News. Game Crasher gushed over the details of who was there. Who came with who and who wasn't invited? Now, check out this line, right? This is better than anything that you would found in page six when you're reading it. This is your writing. Quote, it wasn't uncommon to find Puffy. Uh, I can't read my own writing. It, to find Puffy sipping crystal straight from the bottle while Leonardo DiCaprio watched women in bikinis on swings 
and an original copy of the Declaration of Independence on display, borrowed from TV producer Norman Lear. No big deal, huh? Just a little Declaration of Independence original copy. Yeah, Man. that was from, I saw got reporting as well as photos. Like, there is a picture of Puffy drinking champagne and Leo is watching him. And then there's other photos of, like, women in these swings over the pool. Again, I was I was too young. I was, you know, watching it from afar. But, again, anybody who's been to those parties, it's like, tell me everything. I just I need to know every detail. But just imagine that level of opulence, but also the fact there was no social media, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what made those parties special. It was yeah. you get all these celebrities from across a cross section of different aspects of, of culture and music and sports and Hollywood and society together. But in many ways, you kind of can do anything you want, because as long as the gossip rags don't write about it the next day, you're good. Sure. Now, for a celebrity, you can't do anything without 50 cameras being put out. And yeah. even when they say no recording, you know, somebody always pulls the phone out. So those moments, I think, are fewer and fewer between because it's just a different time. And they become more legendary over the years, right? The older they get, the more legendary they become. You were talking about, about Cameron. Did I make this up? He he made up a color, didn't he? He like invented a color? Um. Like Possibly a in his pink. mind. Probably I mean, in his swear, mind, like, he did. Thing. It must have been a fever dream for me. I know like he was known for his, his iconic pink, but like, I swear yeah, to I don't God, think he, like, Pantone tried to, like, has uh, it. recognized it. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I definitely don't think it was the color of the year, but I think that uh -huh. baby pink has become so synonymous with him. And with Cam, I take a deeper dive into just this idea of why Cam was allowed to wear pink and mm. that was acceptable. Yeah. Nas wore pink in the Street D Dreams video, obviously a nod to the movie Casino. That was acceptable. But when Kanye first wore pink, and you know he's talked about this um, on the record, people questioned his sexuality. Mm. People were wondering, are you soft? Like, what does that imply? So this mm. idea that masculinity could be almost distilled into something so so uh insignificant one would think as a color now mm. now you take a look and you see artists like uzi vert and asap rocky and travis scott and everyone is kind of doing whatever the fuck they want which i think mm -hmm. is great but there was a time it's like no cam is allowed because he's like hyper masculine and you know nobody's gonna fuck with cam and that's just like a harlem thing but other rappers would probably be terrified, right? Yeah. Like, I don't want people saying things about me. Am I going to alienate certain fans? So looking back now, it seems so trivial. But back then, it was like a big deal. It was uh, that Street Dreams video was classic. The whole even with like, you know, where they're talking with their under their hands like this, like they did in Casino and that, you know, those ridiculous slash awesome suits that like De Niro wore and, you know, Nas wore. Yeah, I actually talked to Nas and... not too long ago and I asked him, do you still have that suit? And he's like, I think I do, but I don't know where it is. So that was kind of a bummer. That's awesome. I don't know for sure. I want to say my first cassette album was Arrested Development. Oh, wow. 
yeah, like yeah Tennessee, yeah. like that. Yes, that one. Three years, mm-hmm. five days, something like that was the name of the album. Great mm-hmm. album. Every Everyday People was my jam. I think I had that song memorized. Like 93, right. 94. Yeah, something like that. You know, there's mm-hmm. that there's that fast car remix country song that's out now. And obviously, okay. shout out to the shout out to Tracy Chapman for the classic. Oh my but god, I, I love but, that song. It's right, song. but I, but I also think of nice and smooth. Sometimes I run slow, okay. sometimes I run quick. Okay, right? so that's how, I'm going okay. back that far. So, what are maybe some of the first albums you got? Who are some of the first ones who really turned you on to hip hop? So I came in a little bit after you. So I would say the earliest artists I remember definitely Biggie, um, Ready to Die for sure, mm-hmm. uh, Pac. And we're talking, this is more in the in the death row era. Snoop, for, like, for some reason, I just remember Gin and Juice very vividly. Hmm. Um, Dre, The Chronic. But actually purchasing, like, with my own money. Yeah, and yeah. I use that in quotes because it was yeah. more like an allowance. I mean, Puffy's, No Way Out. Hmm. Um, my first, and I'm a huge Rockefeller fan, but my first J album that I bought was Volume 2. And I remember so distinctly going to Target. It was a big deal if your album was in Target. And he had like the end um, the end of the shelf. It might have even been a little cut out of him. And I remember buying volume two. And then later, of course, I, I got Reasonable Doubt in volume one. But yeah, volume two was the first I kind of bought with my own money. So I became more of a purchaser of music in like the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Briefly, I did that... Um, it's called like Columbia House, where yeah, you paid yeah, like yeah. a penny for like ten yeah. records. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure I got that first Nori album from Columbia House. Yeah. Um, and to anyone who's still a, a member, make sure you cancel it because they do charge you every month. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was so, sort of that era of like the Fujis, yeah. the Score, of course, Miseducation. Yeah. So that that late '90s and early 2000s was kind of just such a, a like a dreamlike um, yeah. era to me and for me working in the game i came up during the blog era so drake and cole and kendrick and wiz like these were some of my first interviews as a writer which now it's insane to think about you know interviewing drake on your lunch break but it worked for both of us because you know neither of us had made it um yeah so that was really kind of like through you know the 2010s mm-hmm. up to about let's say like 2020 would be kind of in my mind what I would think of like as like my era. Mm-hmm. I'd have to think about it, but I would want, I would say Kanye Drake, maybe a tie between Eminem and Lil Wayne. I'm talking about the verses for forever or maybe oh, Lil yeah. Wayne over Eminem. Yeah. You can weigh in or you can plead the fifth on that. Those, those four verses. I would, uh, I mean, I, I, yes, Marshall for sure. But I thought Drake had a solid verse. I and if I remember second, yeah. that, yeah, and if I remember, that was really at that time when Drake was just, like, stealing every song. Like, there was that moment, right, when he'd be on songs, and it was just, like, just give him. Like, try to make him go early, because like if Bedrock not, and, just yeah. take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was between him and Nicki. They would just, right. like, steal the song. Pretty so much. Pretty much. On one hand, you're going to get a lot of, like, listeners, but just beware that they will steal your shit. <laughs> um yeah, but in my mind, that was like the Drake era. I mean, of course, Wayne was yeah. huge too, but in my mind, I just remember it as like the era of Aubrey. <laughs> so you work for Sean Combs, like as the record company or for Sean John, but both. How did that work? So my first industry internship was at Bad Boy. And the oh, funny man. story is, so growing up again, my two favorite labels, 
Bad Boy and Rockefeller. And I was very sad because they had sold Rockefeller by the time mm-hmm. I was old enough to move to New York. So it's still a little bit, you know, in my heart, a, a little, little bit of a, 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 miss, a missing piece, um, mm-hmm. which I hope to fill one day. Mm-hmm. But uh, Bad Boy, I mean, I knew everything about Puff. Like by the time I was in high school, I could write his biography. I mean, I can write his biography now from yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. I know that much about this mm-hmm. man's life. Every magazine I would read, if he was on MTV for 10 minutes, I would ask my mom to record it when I was in college. I got to come back and see it just, just to make sure there's no new info that I'm missing. And again, I, I, I'm a huge believer of like manifestation and putting things in the universe because I'd written an article for my school newspaper, the Michigan Daily, when I was a kid in college and somebody from Bad Boy read it and they oh. called me on my dorm phone. Now, around this time, everybody, not everyone, but most everyone had cell phones. Mm -hmm. So the only person to call you on your dorm phone was maybe your mom, maybe because, you know, you'd want to use like your daytime minutes. That was (laughs) the thing back then. We had limited minutes during the day. And I get a call at South Quad at the University of Michigan. And it's like, yeah, it's so-and-so from Bad Boy. I read your article. Like, I want to talk to you. And it didn't sound particularly nice. It wasn't like, hey, I want to talk to you. It's like. I want to talk to you. Like you're getting sued or something. I mean, I didn't, I had nothing. So if you want to take my textbook to my (laughs) TI-89 calculator, you could have it. TI-89. Is that the one we could play video games on? Yeah, like Snake you could play and you could play Drug Wars. Drug Wars. That's Um, a whole different episode. Oh my God. That's a great, that's a great game. So I remember being like, this is like, I'm being punked. Punk hadn't even been a show yet. So I'm being pre-punked. You're being candy cameraed. Yeah, it was it was something going on. I call back and it was legit. The guy happened to have been a graduate from my school. What? So he and our newspaper it was a big newspaper for a campus, the Michigan Daily. So I must have showed up in like Google search or he had mm. Google alerts set. Something was going on. And I'm like, it's so crazy because I happened to be going to New York in a few weeks because my business school, I went to the Ross School of Business we were taking a trip to New York as part of like the media entertainment group. And I said mm-hmm. to him, yo, we should meet and I will take you out to coffee. And he's like, you're going to take me out to coffee. You're yeah, that confidence five. though. That yeah. confidence. And again, I've Why always not? just had that. And yeah. I did. We went to Starbucks, the old bad boy office. He was at like 1440 Broadway. Puff had just moved up to 1710. I think it is. And we went to Starbucks in Times Square. He didn't pay for coffee, but we just started talking, chopping it up. And I was like, look, I'm trying to be an intern. Like, what's really, you know, going on? And he's like, yeah, when you graduate, you have a job. Done. And again, this was a very different era, kids. So nowadays there's HR and applying. and Mm. But back then, it was really who you knew. And if you had that hustle you could make things happen. So I interned at Bad Boy and at the same time, so this was an unpaid internship. I also interned at American Express because mm. that was a very paid internship. So okay. from nine to five, I was at Amex um, in the financial district in New York. And from like six to midnight-ish, Ooh. I would be at Bad Boy. Then we would go out to the clubs because again, I'm in New York for the summer and I'm 21. So like Monday, we'd go to Butter. I think like, Maybe Tuesday was PM, mm. Wednesday bungalow. Uh, forty forty was open. I was at just the gonna time. ask when the forty forty yeah. started. Okay, 
Ah, uh, yeah, forty forty was there, and if anybody remembers that steep staircase, and the first time you go into the bathroom, they were unisex, and I bugged out. Again, I'm from a small town in the Midwest. I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? And you would see so many celebrities because, again, mm. this is pre-social media. Mm. The few pictures I have, I have one picture with Puff, mm. one with Jessica Simpson. Okay. I don't know why I saw Random. her when I was out partying. Mm. But you had to do it with, like, you're either a disposable camera or if you were really, you know, a little fancy, like, you had a digital camera. Oh, yeah. But otherwise like people were still going out and having fun mm. and that was to me that was the last era of like club life mm. in new york where mm. you would go out and see oh look there's jay-z over there okay pharrell's over there gay's over there. and it was regular like we were just mm. out partying um so yeah so that was kind of my first experience with bad boy and then when i started my actual career post-graduation i was at william morris endeavor Okay. which is like one of the big Hollywood talent agencies mm-hmm. and their famous mailroom program. And the reason it's famous, it's like, you know, like I believe with Bob Iger and all of these big names, David mm-hmm. Geffen have all gone through this program. Oh, wow. And like the glamorous name shows, you push a mail cart. So you got to remember, I went to business school. I graduated with honors. Mm-hmm. I had a four or five internships under my belt. I'd been at CNN. I was on Bad Boy. I was at Amex, at Super Bowl. Like I had all of these experiences. So I come to New York, like so many wide-eyed graduates thinking like, this is amazing. People want to hear what I have to say and my opinion matters. Mm -hmm. No, you could go deliver some mail and fetch coffee and get yelled at. Mm. Um, All for $400 a week, which was what we got paid before taxes. And that's what it was. So I I did that for like a year and change. And I was like, I need to get back into the music business. One of my homeboys, he's like, hey, you should go to Bad Boy. They're like hiring. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I write about this in my book where I thought I was going just to be like an assistant or a a runner, just something random, right? So I'm wearing like my clothes from William Morris, just, you know, something very basic, probably got from like Express or something. And I show up and people have flown in from like LA and a guy in a suit. And I'm looking around, what are you guys overdressed for? Like, this is to fetch coffee. So we're sitting there at Bad Boy and it was like in the lounge area. And one thing I remember, it always like smelled amazing. Like Puff mm. is a huge fan of just kind of like that olfactory experience. So it was probably like, you know, uh, that Sean John unforgettable fragrance or mm. he loves... um. I think it's like a diptyque might be one of his, his favorite uh, uh, fragrances as well for candles, but just smelled amazing. So we're sitting there, nothing is going on. I'm flipping through whatever coffee table books they have. Hours are going by. Okay. No one is talking to us. I try to talk to the other people because again, I'm here, right? They're not really friendly. And then this woman comes out and at the time she was Puff's like chief of staff, which I didn't know. She points, she looks at all of us, just points to me, you come with me. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I walk into a little side room and Puff is there with my resume and he's looking at it. So of course I'm bugging out like, mm. wait a minute. Cause you know, when I was an intern, I met him once, you know, mm. he does not remember. It was at a softball game. That used to be a thing, the bad boy softball uh. game. And he's looking at my resume. He asked me like two questions. I answer them. They're not that interesting. It's like, mm. cause he knew I had interned there. So he wanted to know who I worked for. 
he's like, what would he say about you? And then he's like, okay, cool. That was it. Like, that's it. He wanted to just know that someone mm. he trusted, what would they say about you? And he just looks at the woman and gives some sort of vague nod. And she's like, okay, can you come in tomorrow and start like helping out? And of course I say yes. But now looking back, that wasn't really a job offer. That was more of an uh-huh. offer for you to hang out. And if we yeah. like you, maybe something happens. Yeah. So I did that for a few weeks. I had my main job at Wooly Morris from nine to six. Luckily, bad boy was like walking distance. It was just around the corner. And from six to whenever, I would just be a bad boy in post mm. office. He had like three, I think three or four main assistants at the time. And just helping them. If it's like, hey, pour these Ciroc shots or go get some copies or just sit around until we tell you to do something. Um, go get socks. Like these were just regular things that happened. And yeah, it was it was very surreal. But I think, mm-hmm. again, for the kid who grew up buying No Way Out and, you know, reading about Puffy in magazines like Word Up and Vibe wow. and Rolling Stone. I mean, looking back, it was like a total mindfuck. Um but yeah, but also kind of amazing. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. One of my favorite lines, I was all proud of myself. I knew it was uh, Kanye said something about, I was like the bad boy street team. I couldn't work the locks. I was like, oh, I get that. Double entendre. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right, right. So I got asked then about the Chappelle show that the when he did the making the band and the and the Diddy stuff. I'm sure you've seen that one. Was that like hilarious yes. to you? Or were you like offended? Or were you like, that's so true? Oh my God, it was hilarious, right? Oh my God. So did you ever have to chop onions? I didn't have to chop onions. Um, it was funny, though, because I mean, Chappelle's show was like everywhere in college. Like oh, everyone it was... had it. Every time you go into somebody's dorm, someone was watching it. It was like yes. a genius. And That's I'm so pretty genius. sure, I mean, you know, Puff probably saw it as as a parody and as a loving homage. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. That much of a of a cultural icon Mm -hmm. that's when you know is when you're getting roasted right like you're nobody until like snl makes fun of you Mm -hmm. Chappelle makes fun of you Mm -hmm. uh the simpsons or south park like they once they make fun of you okay now you've made it um but yes that was definitely an exaggerated version but again i think one thing about puff and i think i say in my book is he really has like the craziest work ethic for himself and that trickles down to the people around him like when he would come to office the girls would put their heels on they would everyone sat up straighter Mm. you call him mr combs like it's just it was a different type Mm. of environment and Mm. i think that companies like bad boy for so long excelled because of that right when you're the leader of the company he sleeps four hours a day like he he's going to outwork everyone and you know, I even to this day, I was talking to one of my friends recently. And as a freelancer, or even as an author, you have to do a lot of work yourself. And you have to hustle and, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and pitch yourself and do a lot of things that people don't realize. And a lot of people ask, like, how are you able to do it? It's like, I came up under guys like Puff, like, there's mm-hmm. no, no. So when people say, oh, we didn't hear back, or yeah, that's a no, 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 that just means not no is in not right now Mm. so ask them tomorrow Mm. or you didn't hear back well did you dm them Mm. did you call them you know it's this idea of you just get shit done like Mm. you don't need to talk about it make excuses just like figure it out and i think that's something yeah like i really you know there were look there were a lot of parts about coming up in the industry in that time that looking back maybe weren't the most positive 
now we would refer to them as, you know, not the most um, nurturing environments. But I think anyone who came up around that time, we have a different work ethic Hmm. because we really worked hard, right? Like I'm not from New York. Like I'm from a small town. I don't have anybody in the industry I'm related to. I, you know, never dated anybody in the industry to get ahead. So I had to figure this shit out. And Mm. when you come with that mentality that you're confident in your skills and you have to be fearless and kind of a little bit insane too, right? Like believing that you can do it. I think when those are funneled in positive ways, they can be really beneficial. And I Mm. do hope that, you know, that next generation, like I'm glad that they're getting compensated better. I do like their safeguards in place with HR and things like that, but I do hope they don't lose that fire and they don't lose that hustle because that's something mm. that served a lot of us really well. Yeah. I want you all to go uptown and give me some left-handed golf clubs. Only one, left-handed. One, yeah. One of the things he said, right? You talked about some of the seeds for the book. I want to make sure I'm always bad about this. Tell me, you know, October 10th, we're looking into the future. Where any places you'd love for us to buy it? Obviously we can buy it anywhere, you know, Amazon, all that, any particular bookstores or through the publisher directly or how do you prefer we buy it? Yeah, I mean, buy it how, however you buy books. So definitely Amazon um, is it's a great place to buy it. Um, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all those places. But mm-hmm. also, if you have an independent uh, bookstore that you really like, always got to give love to them. Uh, places like Rizzoli has it. So yeah, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you Google Fashion Killer book, not Fashion Killer, the ASAP Rocky song. Right, right, right. Um, and also not Fashion Killer, the romance. I didn't realize there was oh. a romance title. It looks fascinating. And I'm, <laughs> I, might, I might buy that. But, you know, once my book drops, I'll buy it. <laughs> but uh, it's the one with the with the skull on the cover. And that's yes. very much a um, a nod to McQueen. You know, skulls were, were huge kind of within his aesthetic. Um, and I also wanted a book that didn't look like a hip hop book. That was really important to me. Oh. I wanted a book that looked sexy, that looked looks, that it could sit on someone's coffee table next mm-hmm. to the Tom Ford book, next yeah. to, um, you know, Virgil's book, next to, you know, uh, uh, an issue of Vogue. Mm-hmm. And it would just look nice. That was really important to me, too. So one thing about this book, I was very hands on with the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. the layout, um, even with my blurbs, like I got, you know, Dapper Dan and Raekwon, Slick Rick, it was really important to get icons from sort of different facets of this, of this fashion conversation. Um, but yeah, so Fashion Killer, how hip hop revolutionized high fashion, it's out 10-10. And definitely, pre-order i don't know mm. when this when this episode's going to go up or if it's 10 10 then you can order it immediately yes and, go um, buy it now yeah yes go buy it right now like literally and, right now literally right now and yeah. i do think it is important because you know in the book space a lot of hip-hop books don't get made and mm. a lot of people feel like they just don't sell so i think it's really important as readers and as fans like support you know good writing support authors support mm. these books um, even myself, like I get sent free books, I still buy them because yeah. I think it's important that those sales be seen. And, you know, when I get the book, I'm posting it on social media, shouting out the right. author, tagging the publisher. I think it's important, right? Just signaling to the industry that these stories matter. 
and also the way and we're telling the stories that hip hop, you know, deserves 80,000 words, right? Hip hop mm. deserves a hardcover book from a major publisher. I think that's really important. So I, I'm a firm believer. I see books in many ways as luxury items, right? Mm. Um, it's only, you know, under $30, but it is a luxury item in the yeah. sense you have something tangible. You can put it on that bookshelf. You can put it on your coffee table. Mm. And, you know, it's really about this idea of, elevating the conversations and really giving the culture it's um it's it's rightful place within within the literary world hmm. i think my mouth might have literally dropped my jaw dropped when i saw the the slick rick blurb rick yeah so older. yeah and um yeah. you know those are blurbs i i got myself i reached out nice. i've been speaking and i got rick in the book as well like i was yeah. really thankful for him to talk about just coming up you know, this, he has a sort of like the London style mm -hmm. meets like the West Indian with his heritage. And he brought that to hip hop. So this was the guy in like, you know, he had the suits, he had the, um, obviously the eye patch, <laughs> but throw on a Kangol. Like he really brought, I would say almost like a kind of like a gentleman swag to, to mm -hmm. the conversation. Um, yeah. Dapper Dan was amazing. I got to go up to his atelier in Harlem, got the full tour that was awesome. Um, and mm. anybody who's in New York, if you get a chance, please, please do that if you can. Yeah. And um, I also got Raekwon. And for me, yes. you know, coming up as, as a Wu-Tang fan, I mean, who can forget like the famous jacket in the, um, in the Can't All Be So Simple video. Like, I mean, this guy was like the, the, the polo guy, right? Mm. So Ray was great. And I also got some great uh, writers as well. I got Dan Charnas, who wrote uh, mm -hmm. the Dilla book, obviously, best-selling book, critically acclaimed book. And he's somebody who's been uh, a mentor for a long time. And Vicky Toback, who released Ice Cold, which is a book about okay. hip-hop jewelry. Gorgeous book from, mm -hmm. from Tas Chen. Um, and yeah, they were all very generous and were, were able to blur the book and you know, again, just kind of having those cosigns and endorsements, it's, it's really heartening, because I think as an author, you you write, and it's very sort of, you're in your own head, and it can be kind of like this, this solo journey. So to have other people that you respect and look up to, mm -hmm. um, admiring the book and giving it its giving it its accolades, it's, it's really a great feeling. I bet. ASAP Rocky, I mean, I think he said in the song, like there's like 27 brands. He shouts out, I may be off on the number, but like, yeah, right? I think it's I mean, about 27. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, is that, is that a pretty clear idea of where the title came from? Like, did I come to you early in, yeah. the, in the conception of the book? Oh yeah. That was, that was the name of the book even uh, prior to the proposal being mm -hmm. sent out. Yeah. 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 So it starts off with the intro, like we talked about, like 1973, the the classic DJ Cool Herc party. Um, you know, you make the point that hip hop, especially in those days, you know, like, you know, had like the four points of emphasis, you know, like graffiti and DJing, the actual like the physical DJing, not like to do with the computer, but like the turntables. And, you know, obviously hip hop is so much about its self-expression. And obviously that lends itself to what you're talking about with the with the fashion um, you know, fast forward a little bit to like 95, you were saying, you know, Aaliyah was everything for you. I know for so many other people, you know, the kind of the classic Tommy Hill figure. She was, I mean, she was somebody who was just, you know, gorgeous, right? I mean, she looked good in everything she did. 
and obviously there's something about you know her dying so young that makes her story even more sad and and, and tragic and, and gripping you you wrote about it that like you know her clothing the tommy hill figure which she was rocking was like quote a tangible way to connect as a first generation person right and yeah, you also absolutely. you also shouted out sam goody which i thought was pretty cool Sam Goody, uh, Record Town. I mean, you know, you know. The, these were places that were were everything to us, right? Yeah. Every Tuesday, new music came out, so you had to physically go there, buy the record, mm-hmm. the CD. You came home, and it was wrapped in this tight plastic wrap. The so freaking stickers. Remember the little stickers the, and the like, stickers. Gonna, yeah, and impossible. for me, because my nails are done, it would always like <laughs> ravage your manicure, and it didn't matter. It was fine. You did it for the love. <laughs> and then, you know, put the CD in your Sony Discman, mm-hmm. put your headphones on. And while the music is playing, you're like reading through the oh, booklet. Yeah. You oh, see yeah. the liner notes, the lyrics sometimes. Mm-hmm. I would always see the thank yous because I wanted to see yeah. who was important in the industry. So based upon where they were thanked, you could see how important they were, right? right. So you'd like open like, a you know, Jay-Z. Okay, he's thanking Dame and Biggs and Ty Ty mm-hmm. and Emery. Okay, so those guys are important. Then you'd like scroll down and there'd be like that paragraph that looked like it was copy paste. Okay. They're not important. Like (laughs) these were things as a kid that I did. And, you know, just imagine that kind of full sensory experience of listening Mm -hmm. to music. And in many ways, I do love to see this like resurgence in vinyl and young people wanting to be collectors. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's dope, right? This Mm -hmm. idea of really admiring the artwork and mm-hmm. wanting that physical proof in many ways that you're a fan yeah. and that just really ex- you know impacted our experience and con- connection to the music because mm-hmm. what i just described to you required getting out of your house driving to the mall purchasing something with like actual cash <laughs> coming home I and mean, the whole process probably took half a day oh, and yeah that's not to even mention once you had a car you could take that record drive around and that experience like it was really just kind of this holistic mm. um immersion into all things music no doubt about it I'm, i've always been a huge rage against the machine fan and they their albums i mean they had a freaking like a recommended reading list you know read about mumia Jamal, read it you know i was like dang it was you know read some noam chomsky like it made you smarter you know wow um, I got Zach's to see reading them. club. I love it. Right. I got I to see it. them maybe 2007, 2008 at rock the bells with, you know, yeah. uh, Wu Tang Method man was there. Most deaf was there. Cypress Hill always been a huge fan. Zach was one of the best MCs there. Like I could see that. Oh, just as an MC, you know, he did stuff with, with run the jewels and all that anyway, but your intro is in the book is, book has such a great pace to it. it in some ways it starts like the, the literal first chapter starts with dapper dan it ends the book ends with dapper dan you refer do you, how do you pronounce virgil's last name is it ablo 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 right and just this idea of like you know the kendrick lamar show and high fashion was listening is kind of how you end the intro you know sadly he 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 passed away in 2018 or so virgil mm-hmm. right but there's really like a, a beginning and ending and like a book ending of it. The first chapter, you talked a little bit already about, you know, kind of Harlem and his tradition and Dapper Dan. And then later, I guess, with like uh, Ralph Lauren and stuff, like they made a big deal of making the big, the logos big, right? Like the logo is <laughs> a thing. It was not understood. Yeah. Is that pretty safe to say? Because I think for, for Dan, it was this idea that he was um, designing for his clientele, which initially yeah. were like drug dealers 
athletes because they were the only ones who could afford it. Rappers mm. could not afford <laughs> tapper dance stuff. <laughs> and that was just, you know, the aesthetic that that they wanted. And then over time, as um, we get into sort of that Tommy Hilfiger era, mm -hmm. that really kind of helped differentiate because Tommy yeah. would have his name emblazoned on your chest. Right. Whereas you look at something like Polo, right? The little horsey is pretty small. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, oh, people like these big logos. Um, and I think I want to say it was uh, Tommy. And I don't know if I mentioned my book or not, but a buyer at one of these major retailers is like, do not have a huge logo. And he's mm. like, I'm keeping this logo. And that ended up being game changing for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was really the era of sort of your body as like a walking billboard for these companies. And, you know, it's funny and I don't talk about it in my book, but right now in, in fashion, it's this notion of quiet luxury so you look at a show like Succession, where they're basically billionaires, you don't see logos, right? Uh, and in fact, there's um a great scene, I think it, it might have been at like Logan, well, spoiler alert, something related <laughs> to Logan, I don't know if anyone, everyone's caught up, but someone who they, they deem to be sort of not as wealthy, carrying a bag with logos on it, and just kind of looking with some disdain, because people who are billionaires for the most part don't wear a lot of visual like visible mm. logos right think about like the tech billionaire and just the black turtleneck yeah yeah, yeah um, totally. or you look at even somebody like a jay-z now his style really has evolved where he may have a watch on that's worth like five hundred thousand dollars but <laughs> it's still only people who know that would know that exactly otherwise it might just be like a turtleneck or like a a, a suit it looks really nice, but there's no big logos anywhere. Mm -hmm. So that's also kind of an interesting notion of once you've really made it, you don't have to prove to everybody you've yeah. made it. Part of showing that you're that rich is by not showing that you're that rich, right? You can kind of tell nouveau riche yeah, from generational yeah. wealth very quickly about who's constantly flexing and I got this, I got this, I got this. But in reality, for people that's every day to them, why would they show that? like i feel like uh, i don't know jake paul logan paul i don't know which is which one they haven't gotten the memo uh, mayweather hasn't gotten the memo they they like to show off but hey you know but but i also think own. you know again going back to the idea of even in hip-hop when you get your first big check like you kind of go crazy right i mean it, it's him? this idea that <laughs> i i don't blame anybody especially within you know the a capitalist society and in the social media era right? If it wasn't on the gram, did it even exist? So you mm. have to show yes. I have this jewelry, I got to tag the jeweler, I got this bag, it's from Hermes. And mm. it's that this idea of showing off. But again, most people from like generational wealth or CEOs of like fortune mm. 100 companies, how many of them are on Instagram every day, right? right. Right. Or even if you look at the music business, I don't really see Lucian Grange going on shopping sprees, right? The head of Universal Music Group. I'm sure he does, hmm. but you really don't see that because probably yeah. for him, that's regular. Sure. Like it's not a special occasion that I'm exactly. on a yacht or, you know, at Hermes, but for somebody that it is a special occasion, they really want to celebrate. Totally. You write really well about like the the source and vibe, especially like vibe with you know with Quincy Jones and how it really had a different aesthetic to it. And you you write about some of the especially women who really fought for um, certain sections for the fashion section. 
um, you know, featured a lot of diversity. You talked about Slick Rick. You know, not everyone's from New York. Not every rapper's from New York. Not every rapper's from New York and L.A. You know, he has the London background. And just the idea about how much of a game changer that, you know, vibe was. And um, and you, one of your chapters, you know, is kind of not contrast, but like put side by side, kind of like this backpack rap um, and like Ghetto Fabulous, you know, which you write about like Ghetto Fabulous, like, these, you know, people understand adversity and there's a lot to it. And shoot, the book doesn't make as much sense without your the chapter about, you know, the luxury law the history of black men, you know, being judged for their clothes, literally being only allowed to wear, you know, certain clothes on certain days and, and those type of things. And it's just, it's a really, you, you mix history, you mix, I guess, sociology with also just really cool stuff about fashion. When you say backpack grab, I'm like, I'm thinking Kanye, like I'm, when I started teaching in 2003, I remember a lot of my students kind of like taught me what that even is, but like, is that John, I mean, is that Kid Cudi? Like, who, who's, who's backpack rap? Do you could, could Talib and them? I, I think know, it was like before much that. Time. Earlier, much really? earlier, really, like Talib, and, if, and, if, and, if, and it, well, if you tell, if you call Kanye backpack, he'll probably Uh-oh. punch you in the face. Um, okay, okay. but he actually said that not too long ago. He's like, I, I was put in the backpack category. He was put in it though. Yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm not. I would say we have to go back to just anything that would be considered more conscious. sort of conscious. Yeah. So I would say from tribe to native tongues okay um getting into of course talib and most the roots so i did interview um amir Questlove for the book as well as uh Faramanch, which was great Ooh. and you know they talked about each of them had different experiences with fashion and so you the iconic what they do video for the roots it was this idea that everyone's doing these flashy videos it was kind of a, you know, a, a little bit of a jab to people like, you know, the biggies of the time. This is mm-hmm. kind of everything is baller and mm-hmm. flashy. And they're like, we're not that. That's not us. But, you know, Questlove was like, I didn't feel comfortable wearing those flashy clothes. So I just mm-hmm. wore what I felt comfortable with. And mm-hmm. that's what it was. For Pharaoh, he said when he kind of, quote, made it, right? This is probably what the Simon Says era now you have a stylist. Now people care what you look like. And what does that mean for you? Um, you know, I'd interviewed uh, the editor-in-chief of the source at the time, Selwyn. And he talked about putting a quote-unquote backpack wrapper on the cover was a big risk back then. Mm-hmm. Like, is this aspirational? Does this represent hip-hop? Will people pick up the issue? Mm-hmm. So it is interesting kind of this confluence of what was going on at the same time. What mm. I say backpack was inherently a response to sort of ghetto fabulous mm-hmm. in some ways. Yes. But the point was that aspiration can be seen in many ways, right? Yeah. Fashion and nice things and luxury is one way, but backpack rappers also wanted success, right? Mm-hmm. They just wanted it in on their terms, whatever that meant to them. Whether it's critical accolades, whether it's a big fan base, being able to collaborate with artists that they want to collaborate with. So aspiration and striving for more is there regardless of kind of what what are the mm. what clothing you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. I was so struck by the quest love thing you talk about where he talks about like I'm mean, obviously he's just like us, but like talk about like lacking confidence. So I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of someone, you know, now he's kind of like the, the wizened old man, not old man, excuse me, <laughs> you know, he's not old. Right. But, you know, he does like the, he did the doc, the beautiful documentary 
he's kind of like a historian, right? Along with obviously being incredibly talented. And then, you know, you, when you write about Kimora Lee, Lee, Simmons, Lee? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And like Lil' Kim. And when I think of low self-esteem, I do not think of Lil' Kim. But mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you talk about the misogyny that existed. You talked about, I mean, obviously, again, she's a human being. So I thought that was just so interesting. There's there's little nuggets in the book that are so interesting. Talking about her, kind of her, um, well, I mean, some trauma in her life that, you know, yeah. from what her father said to her and all that. It just really made her who she is. And it's cool to see her, you know. 20, 30 years later, still, you know, still kind of in the game and you'll hear about her often. And, you know, the next generation gives her props, you know, move on to like the Sean John era, rock aware, uh, you know, and, and also some of the clothing brands that d- didn't make it didn't take off. It's, it's hard. And, you know, the later on with Kanye and, you know, the Japanese streetwear that really made its way into the aesthetic, you know, all the way up to the current day. I really, really, really miss the Sean John red and white sweater that I used to have. Like candy. Wow. Candy. Oh man. Mm-hmm. It was one of my favorite pieces of clothing. I'm like, when did when did I get rid of that? How did I like there's at least one picture that exists, but like those are the days, right? As you also have a chapter, not just about the South, but about like young thug and like gender fluidity. I'll never forget what a great video for um international players. You know, he's like, Oh, I'm a I'm Scottish on my mom's side or something like that, right? Rocking the kilt. Andre, yeah. And also just a ridiculous verse that he has, right? But yeah. I wonder kind of, you know, you talk all the way up to 2021, 2022, like, do you see, what do you see the future? Like what's left to do musically, fashion wise, you know, there's, it seems like it's all been done, but obviously it hasn't. Like, what do you see for the future of, of fashion and hip hop and maybe even a little bit about the, the aesthetic, the, the music? I would love in the future to see a hip hop brand become like an iconic American heritage brand. So in the same way we talk about Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, like these brands that are, were created by a person, but ostensibly have the legs to sort of live on forever. I would love to see that where mm. a brand isn't inherently just tied to an artist having a moment uh-huh. um, or a trend. It really is like it becomes part of the larger fashion zeitgeist. I think Sean John came really close and even just calling it Sean John, right? He didn't call it bad boy. Sure. He called it Sean John. Like this is going to be the elevated version. You're going to see suits and fur and suede and things of that nature. Um, I think that kind of opened the door. Um, You know, we still don't know what the future is of Yeezy. That's kind of a big question mark. Right. But I think Kanye... I'm not sure, but it seems like he's the type of guy who also wants a line that can live beyond sort of his time, his time in this industry and his time on earth. I would love to see that where artists are really in control from, from that perspective. I would also just love to see more diversity in the industry. So from the C-suite behind the scenes. um, So you're starting to see more of what Virgil was doing or Pharrell is doing, but it's not only open to celebrities that mm. there is, you know, the, the designer, the tailor, the, the, the seamstress, all of those things, marketing, PR, all of these facets of the industry, we just see kind of opening up to people of different backgrounds because fashion, similar to a lot of industries is still very insular. 
high barrier to entry because in the beginning you're not making a lot of money so it's almost relegated only to people who come from money very male or, dominated you know. too right i mean so you talk about uh, yeah. Tyler versace but very i mean very white man very very but the, the women yeah, you talk about some of the women who who were behind the scenes doing the great work yeah very yeah. and even to this day right a lot of times people say that fashion it's like clothes that are designed through the lens of a man like what a man mm. wants to see on a woman's body and how does that reconcile so seeing just more inclusivity on the runways and sizing like i think there's so many opportunities but for hip-hop specifically i would love to just see a rapper or a hip-hop line being elevated to to really that position of just like an iconic american yeah. brand so many iconic images in the book. The, just, just the, just the Tupac in Italy was so interesting to me. The Versace show, and that was just like, whoa! I thought I knew a lot about him. That was something I never really heard about. Uh, yeah, shout out to David McLean. He was the oh, photographer yeah. okay. and very generously contributed that photo. And what I love about that photo of Pac in Milan, a lot of people haven't seen it. Like I had never seen that before. Mm. It's just almost like this like street style photo of him looking down. But it's just this like quiet beauty of Pac. And I really love that picture. Yeah. So you're going to see there's 40 images. Some of them you've seen like, you know, Kanye in Paris with like Fonsworth and Virgil mm -hmm. and all of them. Um, but then others are going to be pictures you've probably never seen before, which I think is really cool, too. Tupac was a good looking dude. Yeah. Well, they all yeah. talked about his eyelashes. I know, and right? How long and beautiful <laughs> they were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so many great images. And, uh, you know, again, if you're listening to this, it's October 10th or beyond. Grab the book. Like you said, the cover, you know, jumps off the page or jumps off the cover. The image jumps off the cover, I should say. Like I said, there's some for everyone. There's if you're a straight hip hop head, there's a lot about just hip hop history. There's a lot about fashion. There's a lot about, you know, sociology. And again, if you're looking for something that's current and kind of ask some questions about what's coming, this is the book for you. So congrats and i hope that when this does drop in a, in a month or so that you're just chilling relaxing and really just uh taking it all in enjoying absolutely well it's gonna be on to the next book but we will ah. try to enjoy this fashion killer moment for a while but yes fashion killer out october 10th go by it thanks so much for talking to me Thank you for listening to this episode with Somia Krishnamurthy. Please, please, please go out and get that book. It is live. It is out in the world today as of October 10th. Go cop that today. Please subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts where you can leave me a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. 
The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental as well. And that's by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 209 with Julie Carrick Dalton. She is the author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song, which was named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, USA Today, Parade, and others, and an Amazon editor's pick for Best Books of the Month. Julie is also a frequent speaker and contributed to multiple magazines about fiction and the age of climate crisis. Please look for it in the end of October or early November in Chicago Review of Books. There will be an interview derived from this podcast episode with Somia. Again, Chicago Review of Books in late October, early November, you'll see a print interview. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Somia Krishnamurthy, whose work, like Fashion Killer, How Hip-Hop Revolutionized High Fashion, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 